0: Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, DEI Initiatives and The Suicide Squad. And today I'm joined by our Senior Director of Organizational Design, Daria Lombroso. Hello! We are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. And every month we like to take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations. This month we have a special guest, Paloma Figueroa, Head of Employee Experience from The Ready Set. We have been working with her team to review our own DEI initiatives at Nobel, and so we thought it would be really great to have her join an episode of Work of Fiction and share a different perspective on DEI.
1: Hi, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here and marry my two passions, DEI and over-the-top comic book movies. (laughs) Thank you for having me. We're really glad to have you.
0: Thanks, Paloma. And I thought, what could be better than discussing DEI in a movie about bringing outsiders together? Like... The Suicide Squad, the the recent one,
2: the one that just came out in theaters. I'll be honest, Paula. When you said this is the film we were going to be talking about before I watched it, I was so confused about the choice. Makes sense now. I mean, I don't see how you could look at a movie that involves
0: people who can catch rats and a half man, half shark. Uh, and, and a bunch of other superheroes with unusual diverse powers and not see this as an opportunity to talk about DEI.
2: I won't give a, give it all away right now, but it's quite evident that there are ways in which the subject matter is quite relevant to the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion.
0: So why don't you give us a little summary of the film so that people have some context? And again, this is The new Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad, not Suicide Squad.
2: So the Suicide Squad's a film about comic book villains who are invited to join this special task force for these exceedingly dangerous missions. And if they succeed, they get time off their sentence. But on the flip side, if they stray from orders, they explode. They literally explode. They're tasked with destroying the secret laboratory on the island nation of Corto Maltese, but they find out the truth about Project Starfish, this mysterious government project that actually forces them to take a stand. And it's a new film, so spoiler alerts from here on out. Uh, We'll also be talking about some tough topics like mental health and discrimination, so if you're uncomfortable or simply just wanna step away, we invite you to skip this episode.
0: Let's start out with the title of the film, The Suicide Squad. As one of the characters in the movie actually points out, maybe not the most motivational team name. So this is the famous Suicide Squad.
1: Well, we consider that term degrading. The official term is Task Force X.
0: What role does language play in creating an equitable and inclusive environment?
1: For me, it feels like the idea of radical transparency has taken a really super dark turn. It's like a what it says on the tin sort of moment because these folks are basically part of a prison to anti-hero super squad pipeline with no ownership or agency over their bodily rights and are deemed sort of disposable by quote unquote polite society for a variety of different reasons and have had a measurable amount of success by living in what you know can be considered the fringe society but While I think this is a particularly on-the-nose representation of this, I think it does say something about how society approaches folks who are outside of the collective norm and then uses language and labels to make it acceptable for the rest of us to... <laughs> just add them to a squad called Suicide Squad and merrily send them along on their mission to die for us. I think language can be a powerful tool or can be an incredible weapon, and it can help someone feel seen and accepted or safe. And it can also tokenize and isolate and harm someone and how we communicate around our values to go back to the organizational kind of context around our human capital in an organization You know, what norms we use, how we speak to each other, what words we use is incredibly important and it matters to people. And it's probably one of the most difficult parts of our job because our relationship with language is socialized and can be very insidious. And so making small changes to, you know, taking the moment to introduce yourself with pronouns or updating job descriptions to be gender expansive or animal anthropomorphic King shark weasel inclusive um, makes a huge difference. And I think it's a missed opportunity for a lot of organizations because it's a low lift, high impact way you can show that you're committed to it. And it's a fantastic place to start either branding wise, like the Suicide Squad, maybe. I think eventually they call themselves Task Force X. So maybe they take that piece of advice in the future. But from branding to like how people are treated and spoken to and like recruitment efforts to
2: retention, it's it's a huge opportunity
1: for organizations.
2: You know, the thing that I'll just come back to is in the naming specifically of the suicide squad, of whether the decision for the members of the squad to be from the prison system was one that originated in the comic books or in the film. That decision I think is a substantial one. And and to Paloma's point, the sort of disposable nature that comes with both the name of this group and in reality, in a broader societal context, the way that individuals within the prison system are treated, I think is, there's a potent message there. It's obviously not the core message of the film, but is something that stood out. And I think to many of Paloma's points as well, there's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The Suicide Squad is named... What it is, and within the first moments of the film, we see half of that team, here's one of our first spoilers, killed, right? Within moments of the film beginning. And so you see that disposable nature really come to life quite quickly, and it's not just this sort of euphemism, it's quite grounded in reality. And I think the inverse of that, if you're using language in a way that's empowering, can theoretically do the same thing, right? You can create a space through the intentional use of language just in the way that we can come to expect as an audience watching this film that many members of the Suicide Squad are going to die throughout the course of the movie.
0: And earlier, both of you were talking about this idea of the team being selected from prisons. And we're actually told that the team has been selected based on their completely unique abilities. And there's certainly physical diversity. The leader is a black male. You have two female members of the team. You've got the half man, half shark. But as Bloodsport points out, their skills really aren't that diverse.
2: Are you having a laugh? What? You just
0: said each member of the team is chosen for their unique abilities. He does exactly what I do, but better. How do you assess diversity on a team? What does real diversity look like?
1: I mean, that's the million dollar question and why we get paid to do what we do. But truthfully, I think in the context of an organization, I've seen a couple of approaches to this, but two core approaches and the first is sort of the academic approach so like the suicide squad approach like there's a diverse set of physical people in front of us and it's like a known and quantifiable like understanding of how humans and or half man half shark (laughs) approach and perceive themselves how they identify for like me I'm I identify as a woman latina neurodiverse all of those things and you could be grouped into a population of people to different super squads if you will but it's something that you could pull data against and track and benchmark and subsequently self-congratulate yourself when you add more weasels or add more like escapees from Arkham Asylum. Yes, thank you. And I, I forgot about
0: the weasel. Yes, my mistake. thank you. <laughs> you can't forget about the weasel. Thank you for I, calling me in. Point.
1: It's burned in my brain, but I think it's like a thing that's safe organizations because it's an achievable metric that can be used as receipts around progress, you know, that they've done and that they could build reward systems around. They can build diversity, equity and inclusion reports around and it proves that an organization is doing the work. But I think like anything related to human experience, like approaching it without considerations around, again, back to language and identity and how that can change and intersectionality and like all of that can feel super limiting when trying to identify what diversity is in any particular group. And I think you have to be careful because if you're not thinking about those things, you can lean into what like we call the theater of DEI, performative. It's just like, well, we're just going to have gender parity on our team or weasel parity on our team or whatever parody on our team without really thinking about what that means. And that's when the inclusion part makes a huge difference because you can hire weasel, half-man, rat catchers all the live long day, but if there's not an environment that is supportive for them, they're not going to stay. And I think you still can see a diverse environment with dominant groups who still carry the most amount of influence. And so I think when looking at the diversity question, you really have to look at it holistically or else it's an empty system that means nothing. And especially to the people who have to live in it, like the suicide squad, like they're obviously not supported. They're hired for their abilities, but they're not giving hazard pay <laughs> or mental health resources. And they certainly don't have a leader that is incredibly inspiring or sees them all of those things are mixed up in there and how people should think about diversity. It's not just one piece that you can do first.
2: This is also a case study for how those diverse skill sets and or physical diversity are used and leveraged in an extractive form right These people are being used for the diversity of their skill sets by an individual who to Paloma's point is not the most inspiring or caring leader and who, quite literally, finds them to be disposable as individuals. When we look within an organizational context, one of the other problems we often see within a DEI context is the need to create this business case for why an organization should invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, I'm curious, Paloma, how this has sort of evolved in the work that you do. I I would hope that we're operating in a a world at this point that's post business case. Like it's not about the business case. It's not about how individuals with more diverse backgrounds actually improve the bottom line for your business because you're getting this diversity of perspective and lived experience. It's just simply what I would hope and I know we're not there, but what I would hope is the realization that we need, we're at a point societally and should have been ages ago where everyone should have the same access to resources, to job opportunity, to advancement within their careers. And that shouldn't be limited based on their lived experience, background, race, or otherwise. And really it's about how to create those spaces of inclusion versus how to make the case for why your business should invest in it to begin with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're
2: right. We are
1: moving towards this moral ethical case, as they often call it for DEI, but functionally in organizations, because we're working within the frameworks of capitalism, the business case for DEI remains because in organizations being able to prove revenue, bottom lines, all that stuff is still very much a stronghold on how we decide goals for an organization. My coworker says this work is too important to be rushed. I think about that a lot because there is this ideal state that we're all trying to move towards. We're trying to move towards it very quickly, but it does take time because you have to change how we think about system. We have to change how we think about making money, paying our salary. How do we pay people's benefits? It's still a complex conversation, but I am seeing more people take into consideration and really put a lot of emphasis on it. Let's break down DEI. We've been talking a lot about DEI, we've been talking a lot about diversity.
0: Let's explore the difference between diversity, inclusion, and equity. The Suicide Squad doesn't really have a lot of choice in terms of diversity. Someone else outside of their team is picking who's going to be on it, and they're just forced into a working relationship with the other members of the Suicide Squad. And at least initially, we don't see them necessarily being very accepting of people who are who are different. We have Weasel and King Shark, who are both made fun of for their looks and, let's be honest, their general existence. Polka Dot Man is made fun of for having polka dots being his main weapon. They call him the Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man. What does he do, throw polka dots at people? He does. He throws polka dots at people. Hey, dot man, I was hoping you'd entertain
1: my kid's birthday party. You fucking pussy! (laughs) How do you address inclusivity with a team? There's a couple things that I've seen organizations do, as well as things that we consider at ReadySet, because we're also an organization, um, that help to indicate and really show commitment around inclusion in the workplace. I think... At the top, you know, making sure that company leaders understand and are visibly invested in ensuring that this is a priority. So that means talking about it in all staff meetings. It means making it a regular board meeting agenda. It means answering questions, sometimes difficult questions in timely manners around feedback loops, around progress on It's asking very specific questions that you can check around competencies around how people feel heard, how they support voice, how they support mental and physical health in the workplace, like actually hiring for that and not just like hiring somebody and then worrying about it later and then talking about it when it comes up later. And then I think like later training them and like giving them space to like work out things that are questions around like, Hey, this came up in a team meeting. I don't know how to approach it. Like giving them peer and cohort support and training and resources to be good managers. And then I think clear accountability and reporting practices. If somebody experiences discrimination threat of harm, abuse, bullying in the workplace, actually knowing what to do about it. Where do I go? Who can I Who can I create a trusted space with to disclose? If it's not my boss because I don't feel comfortable, then is it HR person retaliation-free is super important because a lot of places are buried in a handbook and nobody ever talks about it. You don't onboard with that information because you feel like, oh, it's negative. I don't want people to think about complaints, but feedback is feedback. And so I think You have to really create spaces for people to share how they feel in a way that feels productive and feels like, okay, I understand what's happening, what's going to happen next, who's involved, and what my role is in all this. Finally, it's just listening to employees. like, what do they need? Like, this is an environment for them. My
2: only add there would be that with inclusion comes the requirement to be open to varying perspectives and experiences and to actually account for those in the ways that you make decisions as an organization. We face this at Nobel when we have this challenge of working through some large type of organizational change and wanting to run it by folks within a cross-section of the organization, individuals who wouldn't usually be involved in the decision-making so that we can understand the impact that that change would have on them, on their work, et cetera. And sometimes we get pushback to that because the question becomes, well, we can ask, but the reality is we probably won't do anything with their feedback. So is it worth asking? And I think an inclusive environment is one that not only asks for that input and feedback, but has the willingness and the preparedness to act on it and to ensure that the perspectives of individuals across the organization are really accounted for when decisions are being made.
0: Paloma, you actually brought up this idea of training That leaders need resources They need feedback in order to grow and become better leaders When we're talking about DEI we actually see that with Bloodsport He is, at the very beginning of the film He's very uncomfortable around rats Due to his personal history And that's pretty unfortunate Because one of his teammates' superpowers is controlling rats What? I have a thing with rats you have a thing with rats. Yes. And you're on a team with me? Not something I asked for! What can we take from this in terms of dealing with our own discomfort as leaders while we're supporting our team? How do you start talking about DEI even if you're not sure you have the right way of talking about it? Part of what makes
1: not a, a good DEI practitioner, per se, but a good human is being able to lean into my discomfort and identify the things that are the immediate responses. It's working with managers and leaders to identify their immediate responses to things, to unpack and unlearn a lot of that. Because, you know, when you're having a conversation with somebody who's pushing you or challenging you or questioning you, as a leader, being able to take that, you know, sit back, actively listen and reflect and not immediately respond with like defensiveness because there could be something there that you just need some time to process and so I think part of a successful training program is making sure that there are a lot of different opportunities for those folks to practice to role play with peers who feel like safe places to ask questions to feel not stupid I don't I don't like using the word stupid but to feel like This is a dumb question. Can I ask this before they go out and do this in the world? Because they are a leader and expected to kind of present in a certain way. It gives them a safe place to try things out. So yeah, so I think discomfort is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly important. And I think there are hard lines in the sand. Obviously, if someone's coming at you with racist language, is physically getting in your face, that's a different thing. But I think we should embrace having uncomfortable moments because it's like the metaphor of a flower breaking through the concrete. It takes time and
2: energy and effort to grow towards the sun. We've talked about it a bit internally at Nobel recently as participating in conversations around equity or receiving feedback where you might be implicated in a particular act or action in some ways is the democratization of discomfort. If you're someone of greater privilege or have more power within the institution or come from a background that societally has been privileged over time, you've likely experienced less discomfort, not just in the workplace, but in life in general. And the reality is that folks around you from historically excluded and marginalized backgrounds have likely experienced a lot of discomfort in the workplace. For so many people, especially those in positions of power and privilege, there is a significant growth edge that needs to be breached and needs to be pushed because ultimately those are the individuals that need to change within an organization and need to help change the systems that impact others. Um, And that is going to require discomfort. It's going to require difficult conversations and feedback. I come from a largely tech
1: startup background and there is this emphasis on breaking things and iterating and trying things over and especially when it comes to I hate the term soft skills but EQ and interpersonal skills it's like we're not allowed to do those things and that's something that I think is part of social standing and identity around like masculinity and femininity and all that other stuff but it's such an important thing to do it's okay to mess up it's okay to apologize for it to repair harm to like, seek to be better and we just don't put a lot of value in it unfortunately which I I feel like is such an important part of you know this process let's look at the flip side of that and by that I mean I think a
0: lot of people right now are really afraid about saying something that is taken in the wrong way. So we actually see this when Bloodsport makes a comment when he sees Peacemaker running around in his underwear, and of course this really upsets Peacemaker. You laughing at me for, meatball, man! Why the fuck are you in your underwear? Tighty whities? Really? No, that's just racist. No, it's not ra- At the same time, you also have a spectrum of some people just being really concerned about how their comments are taken to maybe even arguing against DEI and bad faith. You'll hear this in real life when people are saying things like, so I can't even compliment people anymore. How do you have a conversation with people who are are hesitant to embrace these new norms or maybe a little resistant to some of the information that you're trying to convey?
2: I think this is where the distinction between intention and impact Is really critical. What Bloodsport says to Peacemaker in that moment, his intention might have been one thing, it might have been to protect his own comfort, it might have been to make a joke, but the impact on Peacemaker is another. If we look within an organizational context and the ways in which uncomfortable conversations come up, or if someone's just said something in a meeting that is offensive to one individual and wasn't intended to be offensive, it actually doesn't really matter what their intention was. It matters what the impact was. And it matters what the person who is feeling impacted feels. So I think this is where we run into issues around gaslighting, right? Where someone has experienced something, maybe it's quite negative. And when they share that experience, they're basically told that it's in their head, it's crazy, it didn't happen that way. And the reality is that the impact Whatever the situation was, the impact it had on that individual is what should be taken seriously, is what should be looked at. We really believe
1: in calling people in and saying like, hey, what do you mean by that? There are some lower stakes ways that you can interrupt something that's happening in progress, especially with somebody who you might interact with all the time. You may understand maybe their intent in the beginning and still need to explain to them the impact for the person who's on the receiving end. One of the toughest things about doing DEI work is feeling very duty bound to interrupt and explain and educate constantly, even at your own expense. And so I think it's totally reasonable for someone who is in the process of experiencing something with somebody that's having a negative impact to take a moment and step away. Like you don't have to engage in it if you feel unsafe or unwelcome or it's not the right time so I think that that's another important thing to know that you have that choice to be able to do that if you are the one receiving some of that harm and I absolutely believe that people should be held accountable so finding some time labor to be like hey we had this conversation I started to feel myself get really upset about it I really want to talk to you about it because I don't think that was your intent but the impact is x y and z on a meta level this
0: movie is also interesting from a DEI perspective because of the history of the director, James Gunn. If you remember, back in 2018, Disney fired him from his role as director of Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because of some earlier tweets that made light of rape, the Holocaust, 9-11, and more. Not a great look. But he apologized His colleagues and audiences supported him and Warner Brothers almost immediately made him an offer on this film and eventually he was eventually rehired by Disney. All of this to say, if you fuck up, if at some point in your career you're not being inclusive, how can you fix it? Should you be able to recover or are you cancelled forever?
1: I think about this a lot, because I think cancel culture has become its own entity. And I think in the course of my work, the ability to show growth, to show, to stumble, to to make mistakes, all of that stuff is part of a journey. And I can't get on board with the idea that all people just need to be wiped off the map once they do something like this. Because honestly, if we hold up our own lives, and the things that we were taught was okay, when we were younger, when we had less understanding, experience, like exposure to these things, I'm sure all of us, for the most part, have something that is going to be reflected in that mirror. And obviously, like, have I done something that's public or deeply problematic, like, like this? No. 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 Uh, Did James Gunn fuck up? Yes. Does he know that he fucked up? And is that up for debate? No. Uh, Did he deserve to be held accountable for what he said? Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because I have two minds of it because I think There needs to be accountability for what people say and do, especially when you have that particular sort of influence in a sphere, like you are a celebrity or you are, you know, a leader in an organization, a public figure. I think you really need to be thoughtful about what you're putting out in the world because people take that and people are inspired by you. They're influenced by you. I read through a bunch of the interviews he's done since and the apologies and the type of harm that he's. Attempted to repair. And I think having the opportunity to do that is incredible. And I think he should do it. And I'm glad that we have an example of someone doing it. At the same time, how much of what he's been allowed to recover is because he is creator who is also white, male, and like given a lot of privileges for that world like what if it wasn't what if he looked different or was different what if it was a woman what if it was somebody who was black there are all of these things that I also think play into it here that we can't ignore because he was able to recover he now has a very thriving career I believe in growth first and foremost I believe that people should be able to show up and apologize and I also think that like the way that we hold people accountable is still needs work. Sometimes I think because we want another Suicide Squad movie, we tend to like bury that and say, oh, it's not a problem anymore. So I wonder what kind of work he's still doing. And I'm very curious about like what the long-term impact will be.
2: So I think in the case where you have someone who's respected for their craft and in their career, like James Gunn, who have clearly been offensive in their past and, in this case, a variety of ways, I do think that there is accountability required. And Paloma spoke to this as well, right? The idea that cancel culture can in some ways be quite problematic in and of itself. There isn't an opportunity for growth. There isn't an opportunity for someone to own what they did or said and demonstrate how they've changed in meaningful ways. And at the same time, I think that accountability does have to be real and felt and demonstrated over time. So of course, I don't know this individual. Personally, I have no insight beyond what I've read on the internet. I have seen several of his films, but that's pretty much the extent of my relationship to this. But broadly speaking, I think there's there is this sense that if you're someone who experiences cancel culture or if you've done something in your past, that it's going to haunt you forever. And that, I think, creates a like a villainization of people. I mean, it's, I guess, somewhat funny given the context of the superhero films and villains and all of that. Let's bring it back. But the reality is that if you have someone who's been kind of typecast as a villain or as the bad guy, the person who's wrong they're really cutting off the opportunity for conversation. And ultimately, what you do want, as Paloma said, is for that person to grow and learn from the experience. All that said, I think there are certainly people with more privilege in the world who get away with a lot more, who get second and third and fourth chances. There is a freedom to fail when you are white and male or of another privileged class that many other individuals from different backgrounds simply don't have. You know, that freedom to fail is, is not equitable. And in the case of an individual who's high profile, we also have to acknowledge that they're living their life to an extent in the public eye, right? We see it with celebrities all the time. And I think Paloma made this point that if a microscope were held up to, you know, the average person's life, we would probably see a number of issues in the ways that they've thought and behaved and acted in the past. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's it's probably much less likely that many of us have those microscopes held up to us, right? We're not under that critical public eye. And I think that also brings me to question, of course, I don't, I don't think that cancel culture is the answer, but what kind of self-reflection should we be doing on a regular basis? What kind of reflection needs to happen within an organizational context for leaders, for team members, and how can people create, you know, not just a a practice of receiving feedback from others, but really thinking critically about their own actions and the impact that their own actions and behavior has on those around them. And I think this comes back as well to the point of like the tweets that James Gunn did make were sort of positioned in his head as these were like a joke or I was you know this is my sense of humor and it comes back to that point we spoke to earlier right the difference between intention and impact and realizing that even if you didn't mean something to be offensive it can still be deeply offensive.
0: Waller has asked us to consult for Task Force X. They're using Task Force X now, not the Suicide Squad, before their next mission. What would we recommend for
1: the team? No shade to Viola Davis, who is chef's kiss at all times in my book. But I feel like if we're going to look to make significant workplace changes, I think we need to see Amanda Waller, who is effectively the CEO of all these people, held accountable for some human rights violations and just very poor leadership skills. You start to see that in the course of the movie as the staff start to intervene. And I wouldn't recommend intervening in the way that they did, which involved a lot of physical violence, but I think stopping... But leadership is, you know, setting the stage here. And I think she has to be held accountable. We need to see that investigation. We need to understand how we're going to move forward from that. Because with that person making those decisions, there's no change that can happen Look, otherwise. like She's just very committed to the safety of this country.
0: I cherish peace with all my heart. I don't care how many men, women, and children I need to kill to get it.
1: Once that happens, like hazard pay, a systems of reward for kind of the incredible work that they're doing, saving our universe from a giant starfish. I think that's important to be incarcerated. doesn't mean that they are not worthy of getting paid for work or having access to things like mental health and physical health resources, like making sure, I forgot what the guy with the, the arms that come off,
2: like reattach. Like those are important things for the health and safety of a task force X. I think assuming that Waller's on board, and she can demonstrate a 180 in terms of her empathy and care for the team, that Task Force X themselves needs some, probably some ground rules established for how they're going to work and behave together, what makes for a space where they can all perform at their best, and what inhibits that space. And I think probably as well, what they need to feel supported to do their work, right? They're kind of just like, in this current state, thrown out there, sometimes literally dropped off of an airplane <laughs> into the water and expected to perform. And we know that the conditions they were plucked from are likely subpar, I mean, prison conditions, right? So how are they being supported? How can we create an environment that is sustainable for them, both physically and mentally, as Paloma has shared, and in an on on an ongoing Basis, provide them with the resources so that they're not out there alone doing this work. They actually are supported by a team behind the scenes that understands their needs and aren't looking at them as disposable tools.
0: Thanks for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you liked what you heard. You can always find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm.